Welcome to the Millionaire Secrets Podcast, where the most successful people in the world share their secrets to help you create the awesome life you desire. Welcome to another episode of Millionaire Secrets. This is Jeff Lerner, your host. Always thrilled to be here, um, getting to have amazing conversations with brilliant people and successful entrepreneurs and literally call it work to just do what I would do anyways, which is like hang out with cool people. So um, here we are. Today we are joined by Danny Carlson. Danny is the founder of Kenji ROI, which is uh, an e-commerce agency. He's an expert on Amazon. He's also the host of the Actualize Freedom podcast, which I was actually a guest on just over a week ago. Had a great time chatting with him and I'm excited to carry on that conversation. Danny, welcome to Millionaire Secrets. Oh, great to be on here, Jeff, and great to continue the uh, the fascinating conversation that we started a week ago there. Yeah, we did, and I'm excited to uh, flip the script and get to be the one asking all the questions and, and putting you on the on the hot seat, so to speak. Um, let's uh, let's 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 start early. Although you seem so young, I feel like everything's early. But but let's start extra early. So, do I read in your bio that you used to work construction? Is that kind of your first professional endeavor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was a construction worker. Actually, while I was still in high school, even, I was just doing some construction contracts to make a little bit of extra money. Actually, just in my mom's basement, the contractor who was doing some work in my mom's basement just needed to help her and hired me on there. But, um, you know, I, I really struggled in high school with uh, getting to my last year of high school. Looked like I wasn't even going to graduate on time because I skipped so much school. Yeah. Um, so there was this carpentry program where if I went to carpentry college, for my second half of my last year of high school, then I would magically have enough credits to graduate on time. So it was just kind of, kind of thrust upon me. It wasn't because I really wanted to be a carpenter or anything. It was just like, hey, well, this is gonna make me graduate high school on time, and uh, you know, I can make more money than working at uh, McDonald's. So that sounds good. Um, and ultimately, I ended up working construction for six years in total. Which through that entire time, I, I kind of reached the the top end of the pay scale that I can make as a carpenter, just building, building high end homes and stuff like that. And the only logical next step was to create my own construction company. Um, so that was just a direction that I knew I know I knew the entire time. I never wanted to go that direction. And I was just kind of faced with that, with that decision at that point. And that just was not the greatest option for me. It just, I, there was nothing I liked about carpentry. It paid the bills and it got the job done. But, um, I just looked at all the examples of the older guys around me and I realized that none of them were people that I wanted to become at all. Most of them were, um, you know, either alcoholic or just like just not happy guys in general. And sure, some of them had uh, were making some decent salaries, but none of them were enjoying their lives, you know, so I knew I had to get out of the carpentry industry. So you said you did that for six years and you kind of reached the pinnacle. Uh, how long ago was that? I guess, yeah, I, I quit carpentry forever, maybe five years ago now. Okay. Um, so what, yeah. are you like, what are you like, 29, 30, around that? How old are exactly, you? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, about going to turn 30 pretty soon. Okay, cool. Um, and so I'm curious, like five years ago, what was like the top end of the carpentry laborer pay scale? I mean, you said you kind of hit the top. How much money was that? Yeah, it was about $30 an hour. So like, um, you know, it's enough money to, to live off of, but it's not enough money to, to live 
really comfortably off of, you know, like it, I could, I could pay for the stuff that I wanted, but if I, if I really wanted like what I actually wanted, the nice things and like a, to buy a home in Vancouver and stuff like that, it certainly was not going to cut it unless we're talking about a, a huge mortgage on a crappy house. Is, right? that, is that where you were was Vancouver when you were doing that? Exactly. Which has a, a pretty high cost of living, you know, similar yeah, to Los Angeles good. or something. Yeah, I think that's like one of the top five most expensive markets in North America. It's like Toronto, Vancouver, LA, San Francisco, and New York, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So high cost of living there. Um, and, you know, if I was living in Bali on that salary, it would be great. But unfortunately, construction workers in Bali make, uh, you know, a dollar an hour or something right. like that. Well, so 30 bucks an hour. I mean, you assume you could work, let's say, 40, 50 hours a week. So you're making, you know, somewhere around 60, 70 grand a year. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And, and I mean, in Vancouver, 60, 70 grand a year, it's kind of like when I was a piano player, I made, I made about 40 grand taxable, usually another maybe 10, 15 in tips. So I made 50, 55 grand a year living in Houston, which is a big city, not as expensive as Vancouver. But I remember feeling like I was basically dirt poor all the time. And I was in my 20s. I didn't have a big, I didn't have a family. It's just 50 grand a year in the modern world, 60 grand. I don't know. It, it doesn't cut it. So you weren't, you weren't uh, digging it either, huh? I really wasn't digging it. And um, I mean, I had my escape plan already kind of in progress at that point. So on the side, I was really passionate about racing downhill skateboards. So basically long boards, big skateboards, and we'd race uh, four or six of us down the hill at a time. And then the top half of us would move on to the next round competing at these races. Um, you're, you know, uh, if you haven't seen it, it reach speeds of between 80 and hundred kilometers an hour, usually on these race courses. And it's pretty exciting, but it, it doesn't really pay as a passion either. So I had to fund it mostly with my carpentry and my plan was to, I just want to be a professional downhill skateboard racer and then I can quit carpentry and that would be great. And, um, you know, I worked at this, I was racing for about 10 years in total. And towards the end of that, I had actually managed to make this become a reality through producing longboarding videos and uh, competing at races and, and had uh, amassed like exactly the sponsors that I wanted and everything. It was like exactly the vision that I had had really planned for myself. And like, that was my dream. And I, I very quickly within the first six months really of, of achieving this, I was, I was traveling to Japan on a film trip and I got the same familiar feeling that I had in carpentry of, I'm at work right now and this is just another job, right? And that was, a, that was a pretty hard realization for me to have that I had worked so hard for this vision and dreamed about something for so many years only to realize that it wasn't really any better than working carpentry in this crappy job that I hated in Vancouver. And the only difference was I was making way less money as a longboarder than it was even as a carpenter. Um, so that was a huge realization. And then I very quickly after, maybe a month later, I got hit with uh, just something that forced me to just reevaluate the whole thing too, which was a near-death experience racing longboards in the Philippines. So I was on a really remote island called Sikihor, which was um, about 12 hours away from the nearest hospital probably. You'd have to board a ferry over to the nearest real city to go to a hospital. Um, and I missed a head-on collision with a motorcycle on a racetrack. Maybe I was going down the hill, 60, 70 kilometers an hour. They were coming up maybe 50 kilometers an hour. And I had to actually dive off my board as this motorcycle swerved in front of me going the opposite direction. And it was just a, a really, really close call. I had so many close calls before, but that was just like such a close call with death that I really just 
had to reevaluate my entire life direction. It's like, okay, so I am, I almost died in the middle of the Philippines with, um, you know, no hospital close by. I'm barely, barely making any money. This dream is just not really what it, what it cracked up to be. And in the process, I'd kind of ruined my passion for longboarding in the first place by turning it into my profession. So I just realized in that moment that that was not the direction I wanted to continue going. And uh, I just, just really had to make another change. So before we get into the change that you made, which obviously brought you online, brought you kind of doing what, at least I'm sure some uh, starting point for what you're doing now, I want to talk a little bit more about this, this longboarding thing and this passion. Um, so to be clear, you had started to lose your passion for longboarding before the near-death experience, right? Yeah, I'd already kind of had that realization. So why do you think, and again, I'm, I'm trying not to just totally overlay my experience with music because so much of what you're saying I relate to, I kind of started to lose my passion too. But um, I, I want to hear from you in your words, like, why is it that, I mean, you know, I think about most kids. In fact, my, I remember several years ago, my son, uh, teenage son, and probably at the time he was like maybe 13, 14, he like, he, he obsessively wanted a longboard. That was what he wanted. And we got it for him and he would do the same thing. He would go kind of wind down, you know, it wasn't, he was going, he wasn't going 80 kilometers an hour, but he was going down the hills. His mom would have taken the longboard if she'd known that was happening. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's this, it sounds like a dream come true for a young person to be like, I get to longboard for a living, even if it's a meager living, like at least ride it out for five or 10 years. Um, why do you think you lost your passion for that? Like, what was it about the grind that, that made it so unfulfilling eventually? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was just the terms of doing it. So like at the, at the peak of my longboarding, I was longboarding every single day and I was, I had the mindset of, I was just going to work as hard as I can to become as good as I can. And, and it was more like training and work than it was for fun. When I was doing it for fun and really passionate about it, I was, I was only riding when I actually really wanted to ride. Like if it was raining one day and I just like felt really tired, I wouldn't be going out longboarding. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at, at, the, at the peak when I just had all these goals, I was going out every day whether I wanted to or not. And sometimes I get to the top of the longboarding hill by myself because no one else would be able to ride that day or something like that. And I would just be like not wanting to ride, and I, but I'd still ride. Right. And I, I feel like doing that for, for too long can very easily kill the passion for something. Right. If, it, if your motivation for doing it is, is really not because you want to do it, then, then very quickly it can become something that is just feels like another chore. It just feels like a job. Right. Because the, the, the intention behind it is no longer pure. Yeah, I, I got to say, I think that, and I, I say this a lot, and I get mixed, mixed reactions to it, but I, I you know, there's a very um, common sort of philosophy in entrepreneurial teaching and counsel out there that says, oh, well, like, if you find your, if you find your passion and you turn it into a business, then you'll never work a day in your life. Clearly, you, that was not your experience. It was not my experience as a musician. Um, I'm curious, you're, you're, I don't want to assume that I know what you're going to say, but I kind of feel like maybe I do, but like talk a little bit about that idea that if you can just make a livelihood out of your passion, then it'll just be like fun forever. I mean, I guess that's not your experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was drinking that Kool-Aid back in my early twenties and as a teenager, um, like I just, I mean, if you go all the way back to when I was in high school, I was kind of depressed by the thought of 
me going and working a nine to five job and an entire career retiring when I'm in my sixties. And like that whole thought just almost made me depressed just thinking about it. And, and um, so I was drinking that Kool-Aid of what everyone was saying, right? Like, hey, you follow your passion and you know, your life just, that's, that's the true, only true way to find happiness. You're working a nine to five job is like soul crushing and all that kind of stuff. So I chased this for many years and actually very similar to you, Jeff, I was chasing the musicianship route first with drumming, like all the way from when I was maybe 15 until uh, 21 or 22, I was really heavy into the drumming world, similarly low pay for <laughs> that kind of yeah. stuff. But um, I just always had this idea in my head and it wasn't into like, it was so interesting, like the so quickly after I really achieved that dream of making a full-time living off of my passion, it was just the, the veil was dropped, right? It wasn't, it wasn't all it was cracked out to be. And like, it, it's so easy to have that in your mind that like, you know, I have this feeling of this thing that I love to do and I know how good that makes me feel. And then you're going to transfer that same feeling over to me doing this every day for a job. And I'm still going to feel exactly like that. But I mean, for me, that definitely wasn't the case. And uh, like, same with your story and so many people that I've talked to you that, it, it can really just start to feel like another job, right? If you take the, take the freedom to do it when you want and you're on your own terms and all these kind of things, then it can, it can really ruin your passion for it. So like another example for me, when I was in Japan, I we came to this crazy 720 degree spiral in a highway that's like this structure was maybe 70, 80 feet tall, like really unique structure. And we had planned to go ride and film this thing well, well in advance of getting there. So um, we kind of had to do it as part of our video contract. So I get, we get there and there's just so much traffic on the road. We decide we're going to have to wake up at like 3 a.m. It's the only time there's going to be not enough traffic. And um, we wake up at 3 a.m. right on the side of the road and there's still still cars going up and down. And there's, there's police going by every once in a while. The police don't like longboarding in Japan. Um, but we kind of feel the pressure that we have to do it, right? So we strapped the camera to the front of the car and I was, uh, I was the rider who had elected to do it. And I didn't want to do it. It was super scary. And like, we realized we only had one shot to do it. Like usually in longboarding, you're going to ride the road once or twice um, at a little bit more chill, like not as aggressively to be safe and understand right. how fast you can go into the corners and everything like that. But uh, this was a one and done shot. So I knew I just had to send it as hard as I could um, in front of the camera for, for the one shot. Right. And that was just uh, that was an experience that there's no way I would have done that unless there was some pressure or some financial incentive behind it. Mm -hmm. um, but there I am like uh, just pushing, uh, you know, pushing harder than I definitely would have if I was doing it for fun. And those kind of experiences, like they're cool to look back on. But like, I mean, those were the kind of experiences that really ended up killing my passion for the thing that I was really passionate about. Yeah. And, you know, I have a, a pretty good portion of my audience, I would guess. I mean, looking at YouTube stats, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably close to 20, maybe a little over 20 percent that are 18 or younger. Um, so there's, there's a lot of people that have kind of attached to the Millionaire Secrets brand of like, hey, you know, this guy is telling me the stuff that I'm not learning in school so that someday I can have the life that he has, not the life that my teacher has, right? And I get a lot of outreach and engagement and DMs from younger people. So I know they're listening. So that's why I wanted to hone in on this question. I think it is very, very dangerous and destructive, this, this notion that you just monetize your passion. I think people can waste a lot of time and go down some very fruitless roads because passion, 
the whole concept of passion is it's, it's unbridled, it's unrestrained, it's free, and it does not well tolerate compromise. And as soon as you start trying to commercialize or monetize your passion, it's all about how do I have to compromise for the needs of the business or the needs of the shoot or the gig or the client or the production or like you're talking about, right? And as soon as you start, you know, shaving the, the corners off of your passion to make it fit into your commercial requirements, you are forcing passion to do the one thing that it does not want to do, which is bend and compromise. And that's why, I think that's why the, 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 the joy goes out of it so quickly because the whole concept of passion is about this unrestrained, carefree expression of a thing. And that is the opposite of what happens as soon as you turn it into a business. So what I would encourage children, uh, young people, and, and I'm curious your thoughts on this too, is it's not about finding a passion to try to turn into a business. And by the way, most of those businesses don't pay very well. It's about finding a business that gives you as much financial incentive plus lifestyle flexibility so you can actually have a life where you're able to enjoy and fund your passions. No, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, actually a really recent example came up just yesterday for me. So currently one of my biggest passions is motorcycles. Like I have a Ducati sport bike. I love riding around the roads and uh, I have a dirt bike that I can ride on the track and in the mountains and stuff like that. And I'm very protective of that because I'm very aware of the possibility of really destroying a passion by like just trying to monetize it or something like that. And a good friend of mine actually just came to me yesterday with a proposal. He he plans on making this um, this film series and he's got, you know, this, this big film producer on board and they're going to pitch it to like, uh, you know, all the, all the TV channels and stuff like that. And he basically wants to make like a top gear um, motorcycle kind of travel show for the motorcycle market. And he's got a really good plan to do it. And he wanted me to be one of the, um, one of the kind of core people. And I, I told him no for that exact reason that we're talking about, because I, in my mind, like it, it, like I can tell that he thinks it's going to be so cool. He thinks it's going to be just like us going out on the weekends and right. like having fun and stuff like that. But you know, I, I went through that exact same experience and it completely ruined it for me. And I don't want to ruin motorcycles for me. And like you said, Jeff, I would much rather focus on a business that can make me enough money to enjoy motorcycles on my own terms. Yeah. Right. So like my, my business can fund, me going and flying to Europe to go and ride motorcycles on like the MotoGP tracks or something like that. Yeah. That is way better to me than me working super hard and then going to the MotoGP track in Europe to go like film and then like stop and then like, you know, have to set up the shot and all this kind of stuff. Like it's just, it's just way better for me to be able to make enough money to be able to afford it to do it on my terms. Yeah. And, and I think that it's a very false dichotomy that sets up um, this issue that we're talking about with, with in the mind of the young person. Cause like I, the way you just described it, I mean, first of all, kudos on having the, the perception to turn down that offer. Um, and, and I can say, you know, I play piano for about an hour every morning before work. And uh, you know, I was able to buy myself a, you know, concert grand Steinway piano that sits in the office. It's a beautiful instrument and I play whatever I want and I love it. And sometimes I go on Instagram live and I just play for people. And I've, I've probably played for more people now than I ever did when I was a professional, you know, cause I just, you leverage the social platforms. Um, but, I, but I, that was, I had to take almost 10 years off 
from the piano before I felt the fire relight to start doing it again. So that's, that's the kind of, you know, I'm 41. I didn't really start playing again seriously until the last couple of years. And I stopped professionally when I was 29. Um, but anyway, this false dichotomy, which, you know, tell me if this is, was kind of your perception early on that sent you in this direction, which is in life, you either get a job that you probably don't like and do it for a really long time and give it all your time and basically live under your boss's thumb or you find a passion and you get to do that. And that's it. That's the only, that's basically what they tell kids like, Oh, you know, life, you know, that's why they call it work. Everybody has to do it or life's a grind, get used to it or, you know, get your head out of the clouds and put your feet on the ground. You got to make something yourself. And, and, the, and that, that's one path they lay out or they go, Oh, you can be like a, some crazy person who climbs mountains for a living or rides bikes for a living or does whatever, but you'll never make any money. But they never talk about the middle ground, which is certainly in the last 10 years, at least very viable, which is like, Become an affiliate marketer, start a blog, start a digital agency, list products on Amazon, you know, create a course, uh, do lead generation, like all these digital businesses that you can do in two, three, four, six hours a day, make probably more money than you would have made at the job and still have all this time to do your passion. It's like they don't give you that middle option as a kid. And so kids think that their life is just an either or it's either going to suck this way or it's going to suck that way. The reality is you can actually kind of have the best of both worlds. And I think that's maybe what you have now and part of also why you do what you do. Is that right? Oh, yeah. And that was exactly my perception as a, as a teenager. That's exactly what I thought the choices were. And I've thought about this a lot, Jeff. And the, I think, honestly, a lot of this advice that youngsters hear is well-intentioned. But the problem with it is that it comes from people who don't have actually any experience with this right. kind of stuff. The advice comes from people who have gone down the path of I'm going to take the nine to five job that has security and safety and all this kind of stuff. And so they're speculating, right? They're speculating and dreaming about, Hey, you know what? My life path, maybe it would have been so much better if I was a piano player and I could just, you know, play piano for a living and just, that would be so great. Right. And so it's well-intentioned. They want the youngsters and the kids to have the better life than they had. They just don't know this concept that we're talking about that it actually is more likely to ruin the passion than to be that, you know, dream magical life that we all think it is. And the other thing is that these same people who are giving that advice, they're, you know, by almost by default, they're not entrepreneurs, right? Right. They're not the people who have, who have drinking the, the online marketing Kool-Aid and understood that this third option is even available. And if they were really well-intentioned, they want the best life for the youngster they're giving this advice to they probably wouldn't give them the super risky advice that's like, oh, hey, this business thing, like it, it's like maybe it won't even work out and it's going to be so hard and stuff like that. I mean, that's what they have in their heads, right? Right, right. So why would they ever even tell them that that's an option? Yeah. Yeah, and, and admittedly, you know, I, I, I help a lot of employees try to transition into entrepreneurship, um, especially in this past year with COVID, it's created a lot of uncertainty for employees where they become more open to this alternative. And they struggle. They really do because extreme ownership, total accountability, a pressure that never lets up, uh, and an increased amount of risk that you have to take, like uh, no operations manual, no one looking over your shoulder, no one grading you, no one telling you what to do, no one doing performance reviews. Like all of a sudden, the whole environment changes. And it is, and so you can kind of understand why they're like, 
why that sounds really risky and scary. I don't know why you would want to do that as a, as a, you know, they would tell the kid like, nah, nah, you don't want to, you don't want to gamble that way. Right. It, and yet to you and me, we're like, as long as there's a business model there that's viable, like we'll make it work because we know how to figure it out and we, we, we believe in ourselves and we know we won't let up until we get to the goal, right? But that's just not how, how that's, I don't think that's how the employment model of living, that's not how it wires people, right? Well, that's um, why you gotta be so careful who you take your advice from because the people who are pushing this kind of advice most of them don't have what you, what you really want, right? Like you should be taking advice from the people who have exactly what you want. Do they have the money that you want to make in your life? Do they have the relationship that you want in your life? Do they have all these kind of things? If they don't have those things, then why the heck are you listening to what they have to say, right? right. If, someone, if someone is giving you the advice that a business is hard and you should never try it and everything like that, look at what they have in their life. Are they someone who has chosen safety and security over risk and the potential of creating something greater, well, then it makes sense why they're giving you the advice that a business is never going to work and not a great path because that's what they've chosen for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a good path for them because they just don't want to deal with all of that craziness that maybe starting a business will create. But, you know, you, you just got to be very careful who you take your advice from because I'm definitely not a person like that. I always grew up doing extreme sports, doing things that were risky and dangerous. And I mean, that that for me is a comfortable thing. Like doing risky and dangerous things for me is comfortable. And in fact, I actually get a little bit uncomfortable if I stop doing extreme sports and like things that are exciting and stuff like that. It's just not, doesn't sit well with me. So if you're also a person who's kind of like that, then stop taking advice from people who value safety and security right. and, and things like that. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, along those lines, one of the things I noticed on the uh, on the intake form that you filled out for coming on the show, there was a quote on here that you know my our team puts this sheet together for me, and I'm assuming it's a quote of what you said. So let me read it. It says, "Your mental barriers will keep you from growth at every stage unless you unlock them with a mentor." That's you. You wrote that, right? So that's kind of what you're talking about. Careful, you know, finding the right mentor, careful who you take advice from, unlocking mental barriers. Can you kind of expand on that statement? Your mental barriers will keep you from growth at every stage unless you unlock them with a mentor. And how, maybe how'd you do yeah. that in your life too? No, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the human brain by default, it just focuses on the things that could go wrong. And this serves us in a lot of ways. But if you're an entrepreneur, this is going to be one of the biggest barriers that you face because there's just so many things that could potentially go wrong in a business that it's, you know, you're just going to not be able to grow your business if you just really focus on those. So at every stage of business growth, there's new challenges that are going to come up. And the, the biggest challenges really in dealing with these is dealing with the mental barriers that will get in your way. So maybe when maybe from getting to zero to your first $10,000 a month, your big mental barrier is I have to do everything. And, uh, you know, I can't afford to, to hire someone to help me with anything. I have to be the person who does everything, right? And that's going to be your first mental barrier you have to overcome. And, you know, uh, the reason I say mentors is maybe you don't even know you have that mental barrier. That's the, the thing with mental barriers is sometimes they're completely invisible and you only actually unlock the ability to get past it once you see it, right? You can't, you can't jump over a barrier you don't see that exists or else you're that, it's that mime. You're like, there's this barrier right. and it's like, I guess it's there, but I, <laughs> I can't even see it. So, and the thing about business growth is that there's, 
there's so many different stages and completely different challenges at every single stage, right? Like your in your first couple of years of business and getting to your first first kind of revenue plateau is going to be completely different challenges than when you get to the next one and then the next one and then the next one. And then, you know, it never changes too, right? Like it's, there's always new challenges that are coming up. And I think by far the easiest way to get through those barriers is by working with a mentor. And for my first two years in business, I, one of my mental barriers was I don't want to pay for a mentor, right? Mm -hmm. So that stopped me from progressing faster than it could. Um, but after working with a number of mentors over the last years and like seeing the value that it's given, it is just like such a disservice to yourself to not be working with a mentor to help. So like my current mentors that I'm working with, every time I talk to them, they just like up level my mind, right? Like I tell them about like some, some problem or some like potential thing that could happen. And they just talk like calmly. It's like, just like, give me, tell me what I need to hear very calmly. It's like, Oh yeah. Like once you, once you hit, that revenue, then you'll be, you know, maybe another three months, you'll be double that or something like that. They just say it so calmly and casually because they've done it. And it's just like, so it's so valuable to be talking to someone like that who has done it and is 100% confident in in everything that you are very unconfident in and unsure of um, so that you can break through that same mental barrier and think on that next higher level that is required of you to reach that next higher level, because it is very, very difficult to reach the next level in your business without mentally already being on that next level because you're just going to keep playing the game of scarcity. Like, Oh, you know, I got to be careful. I can't, I can't spend aggressively on this. I can't take this risk. Right. And that can become difficult at, you know, once your business starts to make a a larger amount of money, you want to like protect. It's like, Oh, like I, you know, need to protect this money. I need to like make sure this doesn't happen. But if you take your foot off the gas pedal, then that can be just as dangerous to your business as, as um, being aggressive. Yeah, I mean, I, I will, I will say, give you a perfect example. So in 2019, this year, we're kind of, we're kind of in a different stage now. But there was a period of about six months in the middle of the year when we grew our business about 2,000 percent in terms of monthly, monthly revenue. We went from X to like 20x over six or seven months. But in order to do that, every month we were having to spend a hundred percent or more of the previous month's revenue on advertising to just keep the momentum going. Right? So it's like, if we did $250,000 in a month, the next, over the next 30 days, we might have to spend 250 to $300,000 just on ads. Never mind on fulfillment costs, never mind on sales commissions, never mind on anything else, just on ads, which meant basically we were blowing all our money unless we knew that twice as much was going to come back. But then even when it did, the next month, we have to spend 110% of it again on ads. And the, you know, as an entrepreneur, the, you know, th- that's what you have to do to fuel hyper growth. But I remember it was one of my interviews where I was interviewing Alex Mayer, who you may know, he's Ty Lopez's partner. They buy companies together and he uh, you know, built a, an app that he sold for $350 million. Like, you know, he's just a super sharp guy. He's been through multiple hyper growth experiences in his life. And the conversation with Alex actually gave me a sense of peace about what we were doing because I was, it was just a, you know, he didn't know he was mentoring me. He just thought I, I was interviewing him on my show, but it was like a 45 minute conversation with somebody that had been through multiple waves of hyper growth and understood the trepidation that I was feeling. 
And that one conversation literally changed me. And I think the next month we, you know, was our first month spending upwards of $500,000 just on advertising. And I was, I had a total peace after that, right? It's kind of like, you think about, you know, like a golf swing or even something as weird as like dating. Like imagine you're kind of nervous talking to girls and your friend is really confident. What do you do? You're like, hey, you go talk to her first. I just want to watch. And you get to see what it looks like for somebody to walk up calm, cool, and collected and, and you know, lay down his game or whatever. And you can kind of like picture yourself doing it. And you're like, oh, okay, I could do that, right? And you level up. That's, that's what you're talking about is you're in these situations that feel intensely stressful for you, but being able to talk to someone who's been there and who knows how to process it casually, it's like it normalizes it for you, right? And now you know how to deal. Is that, I mean, does that make sense? That's kind of what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. And like in your situation there where you're like, okay, so I just made all this money this month and now I need to spend all of it and then some to grow next month. There's two ways to look at that, right? One way to look at that is to be like, oh, like I just worked so hard and I made all this money and now I'm going to, I'm going to blow all of it. You know, I don't get to enjoy it. Like what if I lost all of it, then it works so hard and I don't get to enjoy the money or something like that. But the flip side, the better way to look at that is like, okay, so I'm going to, you know, I'm building a rocket ship right now and I need to throw everything that I have into this rocket ship. I have a business that's working and it would be a shame if I didn't throw everything back into it. It would be a complete shame not to see where I could take this thing, right? Yeah. And, if it, and if it doesn't work out, I can do it again, right? It's not, it's not rocket science. I have the skills, I have the knowledge, I have the team and, and we can do it, right? And like those two different mindsets are gonna get two completely different outcomes because whether we are super aware of it or not, having that scarcity mindset, having that fear mindset is going to change the decisions that we make in our business. It's going to change the way we interact with our team members. It's going to change yeah. like, you know, are we going to hire that new employee? Are we going to, you know, be aggressive with ads? Like all these little micro decisions are going to end with a result that is much less, much lower amount of revenue or much less good results than just like going with the flow and having the mindset that it's going to work out and like choosing to focus on the vision that things are going to work out the way that you plan them to work out. Not that like what could catastrophically go wrong and not to say that you shouldn't look at the things that can catastrophically go wrong. But I have a quote from one of my mentors that um, she was just spot on with this. She has a, uh, she is a COO for an agency. I think that does about five or 600 grand a month right now. And she said that, the best leaders are super, super optimistic with their output and really believe in the vision and their ability to achieve that vision, but they're also super, super realistic and they're not kidding themselves about their current numbers and where they currently are on their path to that vision, right? And finding that balance is, yeah. is the real mental skill of an entrepreneur, I think. Yeah, I think I, Tony Robbins says, says something to the effect, I'm sure I'm misquoting it, but he basically says, you know, great leadership requires seeing things as bad as they are, but no worse, and as good as they are, but not better. It's just, it's just clarity, right? And, and to be able to see the good and the bad and, and really assess, but when there's good, you got to be able to lean into it. And eventually you kind of become the confidence that you project in my experience, you know, making a big bet that's based on sound logic even though it's uncomfortable, it might stretch you. You know, the brain is a normalizing machine. The next time it's a little easier. Next time it's a little easier, then it become, eventually becomes the new normal. So 
So speaking of, you know, I guess big bets, at some point, you've got this longboarding thing. I want to kind of hook back into your story. You got this longboarding thing. You're done with that. Uh, Tell me about the bet you made to pivot online. How did that come about? Yeah, so it was, um, it really came after that near-death experience at longboarding. I, you know, for maybe the previous six months, eight months, I had been drinking a bit of the online marketing Kool-Aid. I think I read Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, which just really opened my mind up to the option of creating some kind of online business, like the whole concepts of location independence and, um, you know, removing the time for money equation. These kind of concepts just were completely brand new to me and just blew my mind right open. Right. Um, so I've been listening to podcasts, um, and just learning about this entire world, but I didn't like none of the business models really stood out to me as that's the one I'm going to go for. Mm -hmm. But this near death experience in the Philippines just, really forced me to make a decision. I just chose one of them just basically out of a hat. It's like, okay, so the cost of inaction to me now is more than the cost of choosing the wrong one. So I chose Amazon FBA as my first one to go with. Um, I went really aggressively into that, like spent all my money on, on courses, inventory. I even took out a loan from the Canadian government to get started there. Um, you can get a loan what, if you're an entrepreneur under 30 years old in Canada. And I just, uh, I went and launched my first couple of products, one of them started doing pretty good and then just aggressively went, I actually flew to China and launched five or six more products within the next six months. And I had built this, built this business pretty quickly from, from really not knowing anything up to about $40,000 a month in revenue, which for a guy who was making like $50,000 a year was like pretty, pretty amazing to me. Um, but then I got hit with my first real big business challenge at that point. About six months in, I got my Amazon account suspended for just like a, a dumb mistake that I made. I was, I was selling one of my friend's products just kind of as a favor to him. And there was uh, some language on there that was infringing on an Apple trademark. Okay. And Apple just hires this big company called Mark Monitor to go enforce all of their intellectual property and stuff like that. And they're just impossible to deal with. Like uh, my lawyer, like couldn't even get a response from them and uh, you know, hired an Amazon reinstatement company. And that account was basically burned forever from that one thing. So I ended up losing, I think about $20,000, um, in that whole debacle there. And that was incredibly stressful, super, super stressful. And I was, I was faced at that point with kind of a decision. It's like, okay, do I, do I just give up and go back to carpentry and try to like pay off this loan that I, that I spent, or do I pivot and take my skills that I already learned through this entire experience and pivot into something else? And you know, maybe, maybe the universe had, had something in mind for me. Like I actually chose to go back to carpentry and I got fired on my second day of the carpentry job for something that was just like ridiculous. Like, uh, um, and because like, uh, one of the laborers was the boss's cousin and he was just like super mad that day and like blamed me for something I didn't even do. So I just kind of, I took that as a, a sign. It's like, okay. So like I, I even tried to go back to carpentry, but like, if I'm getting fired on my second day for something stupid like that, then uh, this means I just got to go all in on this online business thing. So that was really the genesis of the Kenji ROI agency. Um, I ended up getting the inventory sorted out and like didn't get totally screwed over with that last business. But um, the Kenji ROI agency just spawned from all of my experience selling on Amazon and the, especially the experience creating Amazon listings and running Amazon ads and things like that. And I just, double down, put all my energy into that. And then, um, I mean, that's what I've been doing for the past four or five years. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting that that's the, that's the evolution that you, you succeeded at doing the thing 
and then you fail, you had, a, you had a challenge that all that did was make you smarter and stronger. And then it sounds like, I mean, it's kind of quirky that you got rejected from the universe saying, nope, you can't go back to a job, so you better figure this out. And then you were able to parlay those digital skills into providing digital services. And I talk about this all the time. I mean, my, my audience will recognize this as a theme. Like once you acquire the digital skills, you become, you know, this, this ninja warrior that has these skills that just about anybody will hire you for your skills. Or in your case, you can actually turn your skills into a business to, to offer to clients. So, you know, it's the skills. My point is, it's the skills. It's not the business model. It's the skills. It's knowing how to write copy. It's knowing how to optimize a landing page. It's knowing how to, you know, do direct response design. It's knowing how to um, manage a list properly. It's, it, but once you have those skills, you know, you, there's probably 10 different business models you could go apply them to. Uh, in your case, you're doing, you know, as I understand, your agency helps other Amazon sellers. But, um, but, you know, I just, I'm always telling people like, learn the skill, like learn the damn skills. We're all, we're all working hard at something. Why not work hard at learning the most valuable skills in the world? You know, if you're going to work hard at fixing toilets, are you going to work hard at repairing automobiles? Why not take five hours a week and also work hard at learning the most valuable skills in the world? That by the way, I don't think I've mentioned this. I know it, you know it, but I don't think the audience knows it. You live where, tell us where you live now. Uh, I live in Bali. I've been here for the past couple of years. And um, yeah, I love Bali so much because there's a great entrepreneurial community here. I can surround myself with amazing entrepreneurs who are doing really amazing, cool things. There's a great fitness community here. There's like some of the best gyms in the world in Bali and just like a, a big consciousness community. I don't drink alcohol. So there's lots of uh, alcohol free conscious parties around that are really great. And, uh, I mean, the cost of living over here is, is pretty amazing too. Like much better than Vancouver. Like uh, I'm living in this you know, beautiful, amazing villa with my girlfriend here. And it costs like the same as my one bedroom apartment in Vancouver cost. Right. You know, it's just, it's, it's awesome. But, um, yeah, certainly online business has given me the freedom to just pick up and move to a place like this and actually live where I want to live in the world. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. So, so when did you start the agency? Um, agency started in uh, the beginning of 2016, oh, okay. four or something years ago. Yeah, so for a little over four years. Um, and uh, and how long did it take you to get your first client? Um, very quickly. Yeah, I got my first client actually through my my network of friends. So at the point, I had been in kind of the Amazon seller community for a while, and the Amazon seller community lives in Facebook groups. Yeah, and um, just, uh, just making it known that I was offering these services to people already in my friend network in these Facebook groups or through messaging DMs. And this strategy still works today. We actually still operate it a, a bit today on a, on a smaller scale. But in the beginning, when you, when you don't have money for advertising, when you don't have all these other skills, anyone can, can engage in Facebook groups and provide value to people and like send people DMs and stuff like that. Um, we're, we're all in familiar with these social platforms, right? They can just as easily be used for getting your first clients. And like that can be your entire marketing right there is just like Facebook groups and interacting with people and LinkedIn and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that. That's such a, a big part of the online marketing 
you know, basic training in general now on the internet, because there's so many people that want to do these things where they don't, they say they don't have the advertising budget. A lot of times I dispute that. I say, no, you just don't want to spend the advertising budget because if you have it right now, you have it tied up in flat screen TVs and, you know, iPads or whatever. But, but regardless, there are a lot of people that want to start an online business. They don't want to spend money on advertising and they go, oh, I'll go into Facebook. Somebody told me go into Facebook groups and, you know, you just poach everyone, right? No. Like, can you talk a little bit about the right way to do that versus the wrong way to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so depending on the Facebook groups that you're engaging in, they're going to have certain rules, right? And there's, there's certain unspoken rules too. So, I mean, the general unspoken rules of Facebook groups is you don't want to be spamming people. You don't want to be advertising. Um, the way to do it is you got to be kind of ninja, right? You almost just want to be posting in there, making it like kind of casually dropping that you do provide services and you can help people with these services. So think about it in a way like you're on a date with somebody, you ever been on a date with somebody and they were just like clearly trying to make themselves look cool all the time. And it's just kind of annoying. You don't want to be that person, right? Mm -hmm. You just want to be like, you know, you still need, you want to make the other person think that you're cool. Right. But you got to like very casually kind of slip it in there a little bit. So same sort of tactic with the Facebook groups, making posts in there that are valuable, like, like if someone reads it, clearly the intention of the post is to just you know, help people out and provide value. And then maybe somewhere in there, Ninja, you just kind of happen to mention that like your service that you dropped. You're like, oh, it's like, this is from one of my clients or something like that. Ninja, yeah. you're, not, you're not pitching your service, but you're like, someone reads that, they're like, oh, this guy has clients, he's helping people. Um, and then you can make your Facebook profile like your landing page, like your funnel. So yeah. if we go to my Facebook profile, I think it's called I am Danny Carlson on Facebook, you'll see my banner has like, uh, you know, CEO of Kenji ROI. And then it has like featured on founder Forbes, like all like social proof, like someone sees that right. immediately. They, they can, it's kind of like the landing page and my, my uh, links are all there. My featured images all show something that's social proof, like me speaking on different, different things and everything like that. So it's got to be a little bit more ninja. And over time, what worked really well for me in my first year of Kenji ROI was once you're engaging in a group for a certain amount of time and you built enough trust with the group owner, then you can start to negotiate some kind of uh, promotions with them. So there was a lot of Facebook groups in the beginning that we got our services listed in like the, the pain to post at the top of the group and stuff like that. Or you can reach out and ask like, hey, I want to do... Um, you know, some like giveaway promotion to your group, like what I give away uh, one of our service packages um, to, to your group, would you be down for that? Right. But it's gotta be a gradual thing. It can't just, you can't just be spamming all the group owners with these promotions because they get these all the time and it's, it's annoying, right? It's gotta be a gradual build up the trust with them, um, build up the trust with the group members and they see that you're someone that provides value. They trust you. And then you can start to negotiate those kind of things that um, that's, that's where you really start to, to rake the value out of that Facebook group strategy. Yeah, I'm, I, this, I think it's such a critical discussion for new online entrepreneurs. You know, the other thing is you, you, you can't go into a group trying to compete with the owner of the group. You just, you just can't, you know, like for you, you wouldn't go into a group that was run by an Amazon services agency expecting to get traction Get with finding clients for your Amazon services agency, or you're just going to get booted out of the group, right? And you know, I have an on, I have an online education group, and we sell online education, and we have these knuckleheads every day in the group that are like hitting up other people in the group, like, oh, you know, 
um, entre, entre courses don't work, you know, hit me up. I'll tell you about something better and cheaper. And it's like, dude, all they're going to do is come to me and be like, this guy's in here poaching and we'll just kick him out. So like, don't waste your time doing that stuff. First of all, I just, I mean, this, this conversation is not about me, but I kind of just need to say that. Um, but, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that the thing in general, and I think this needs to be said about all online business is when people get online, a lot of times it feels like they get really obsessed with the speed of results. They're like, I got to pay, you know, I got to make five grand in 30 days or, you know, if I don't get my first client, then it's not, it's not working. Like as if somehow internet business is, is a broken thing. Um, and so, and I think that it's because the internet, my theory is the internet like fundamentally messes up people's brains because most people's relationship with the internet is so built around uh, qu quick gratification, high, high volume consumption, lots of dopamine being triggered in the brain. And we're just kind of used to getting this rush when we're online, this quick hit of, of you know, neurotransmitters. And so then we start a business online and we think, oh, well, the internet's fast and I'm used to getting gratification fast. So therefore I should get a business result fast. And it's like, no, uh, I mean, how long did you build rapport in the groups or how long had you been building rapport in the group before you were able to leverage the group to get your first customer? Yeah. I mean, usually at least a month, depending on the group. And it's an important point you're bringing up, like all of the group owners that, um, I created these kind of relationships were not direct competitors of mine, but they had the same target customer. So as an example, we're an Amazon services agency and these group owners, many of them had an Amazon course. So they were teaching people how to sell on Amazon. That's a very common one where we create those partnerships with. So we're never directly trying to compete. It was always mutually beneficial, right? They look good. If they're able to help their followers by recommending some extra services that can help their followers, right? But not directly competing with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm curious, um, for people that are starting out now, you know, especially with Amazon, I've heard a lot of mixed reviews about Amazon as a platform and as a, as a place to go build a business. Um, I'm curious, do you still recommend Amazon as like a really good place to start for new online entrepreneurs or is it, is it fraught with peril as I've, I've often heard? Oh, it's definitely fraught with peril. I would, I would rate Amazon as one of the, one of the more expert level businesses. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is cash flow, right? Um, I think where people get into the most trouble with Amazon is when they take one of these Amazon courses that says, uh, yeah, even if you have $2,000, then you can just launch your product on Amazon. You can make uh, you know, side income and stuff like that. Well, they're not necessarily lying. That's just not a very realistic way to look at the Amazon business model. It is a very cash flow hungry business, right? Just think about this scenario. So you, you find a product you want to launch and you have to order enough inventory of that product on your first round so that you're not going to go out of stock on Amazon before you can get your second round of inventory in. So from a cash flow perspective, you got to throw down, um, you know, maybe maybe at least $5,000 for your first 300 units of inventory and getting that all in there. And then if it actually does work, which is what you want, then you're going to have to go to your manufacturer and be like, okay, now manufacture another 500 units of this and you're going to have to give them a 30% deposit on that. And that's all before you even got your first payment from Amazon. And then think about that situation and that's going to scale up the more and more you grow. So let's say you just really start taking off and now you're making $50,000 a month, but 
you're growing really fast, you actually need to invest 150% of that into more inventory growth. And I have friends who are doing, you know, more than $20 million a year on Amazon. They still had the exact same problem. They just have to get big lines of credit. They have to get big loans and, you know, they have to work with some of these loan shark companies who are charging 30% APR and stuff like that. But like, it's worth it for them because they just have to keep funding the growth of the beast. Right. So people, it's not that Amazon is like a, a terrible business model. It's just people have the wrong expectations with Amazon. I think the right expectations is that you sh you're not going to pay yourself from the business for at least the first year because you're going to be dumping all the cash flow back into it. And then maybe after the first year, there'll be enough profit where you can start to pay yourself a salary. But better way to look at it is I'm just going to grow this thing as much as possible and just reinvest 100% of the profits back into the business. And then once it reaches seven, eight figures, then it can make like a really big exit. And that's, that's the people that I see who are really successful with Amazon. They have that mindset with their business and uh, you know, making the exit is where they really reap the rewards of that. So that's why I say it's a fairly kind of expert level business. You have to be willing to, to do that, which usually means that you have some other fairly significant source of income that you can pay your own expenses from and you know, fund that kind of business. Um, but um, you also have to be okay with that going wrong too. There are perils like Amazon can't suspend your account. Like what happened to my account or competitors can come in and all of a sudden the competitive marketplace completely changes. Um, there's a lot of different things that can go wrong, but there are, there's almost no other business model that can really scale like an Amazon business can when it really hits. Yeah. Um, very common for people to hit seven figures in their very first year. Um, not so uncommon for people to hit eight figures within two years. Like it's, it's really, it's really crazy how fast one of these things can take off once it does take off, once you find that formula and really start pumping the money into it. Yeah. What do you think is kind of the, the minimum viable working capital amount that people should have to, ex, you know, to reasonably expect and have the staying power to achieve success starting an Amazon business? Yeah. I mean, minimum, I say minimum $10,000. Um, realistically, $20,000 is a much better bet. Yeah. Um, with $20,000, you can, you can afford to launch a product that is, you know, a, a, maybe a higher price product where all the newbies and Chinese uh, kind of black hat sellers are not getting into. And then you can afford to spend some good money on marketing. You can afford to spend some good money on a good product listing and photography and all that kind of stuff. And you're not going to be cutting corners anywhere. Because maybe with $10,000, sure, you could afford to get your product out there, but you're not just going to like be able to afford really doing everything you can to make it work, right? So, I mean, $20,000, I think, is really what you should be aiming for. And unfortunately, most of these Amazon selling courses out there are not transparent about that at all, right? Because they want you to pay $1,000, $2,000, $5,000 for the course, um, and it's going to be much harder to sell if they tell you, yeah, but you need an extra $20,000 to invest right. in your Amazon products out here. So that's, that's, that's what I recommend. Yeah. You know, I appreciate how candid you're being about this. I, I get the question a decent amount with, within Entra, why, you know, first of all, if we teach Amazon as a business model and when I say no, they say, why not? You basically answered the question. Um, because it's something that I think is more, it's for more sophisticated online marketers like me. If I wanted to go start an Amazon store, I'm pretty sure I could, you know, I might not hit a home run on the first product, but like, I know I could get there. I could figure it out. I could get there. I could fund it in the meantime. Like I'd be fine. But, um, I, I do, I, I, I didn't want to 
taint the question, but I totally agree. I don't think it's a great ground zero day one starting point for online entrepreneurs. Now, if you've, if you've successfully run a Shopify store maybe, or you've got a successful affiliate blog or, you know, you've, you've got some facility, then I agree. Amazon can be, can be amazing. How many products does somebody, and I'm sure it varies, but in general, how many products, or maybe a better question is, what percentage of the products that people launch actually get traction? Should you expect to launch 10 to find one that hits or launch five to find one? What's the ratio? Yeah, I mean, the ratio depends a lot on the strategy. So I think the best strategy in any e-commerce business, not just Amazon, really is to build out a product line that the same customer is going to potentially want that other product line. Right. Um, and if you're doing it in a way like that, then usually you're not going to find products that completely fail. Like at least you can sell out of inventory of the product and just maybe stop offering it in the future. Um, but other people take the approach of maybe they're going to mass launch five products at once and completely different categories, try to find something that hits. Um, they're going to be just completely white label products that they're just finding a manufacturer that already creates it and just kind of throw it up. That business model is just, I mean, it's not as easy to make that work as it used to be just because there's so many sellers on the Amazon marketplace now. And um, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to just launch something without providing any extra value, right? Brands that really are successful these days and really have these takeoff successes, they're launching products that are bringing some kind of unique value to the marketplace. Um, it doesn't have to be revolutionary, right? It can be something really simple that like, um, I mean, I think the easiest places to do these are in like food products or supplements. Like one example, I had a, a guest on the podcast who he launched uh, some product called performance nut butter. And it's, you know, there's a million different nut butters out there, but his, his nut butter, it had a few kind of ingredients that would really um, cater to like the keto, the performance athlete crowd and stuff like that. And then he went and launched this product and it just completely took off. And, um, it wasn't that unique. It didn't take him, you know, months or even like not even months of formulation to get this down and find a manufacturer who could make it, but he's bringing something unique and interesting to the marketplace. Yeah. Right. Um, and so products like that have a much, much higher hit rate than if you tried to launch five generic products and see which one's going to hit. I think that's just not the right way to look at Amazon or e-commerce in today's world. Yeah. Um, and you should be looking at, okay, where, who's a market that I can serve and then what unique value can I bring to that market um, realistically without me having to go spend, you know, $50,000 on, on product development. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I think, you know, the two takeaways I said are, find a product that has a defensible USP or that you're adding some sort of value to so that you have, you know, more, a little bit of pricing power and you're not racing to the bottom to compete with all the, the ripoffs. Secondly, release complementary products so that you can increase the cart value, the average cart value or, and create potentially repeat um, buyers. You know, Jay Abraham has this concept of like how to make more money in a business it comes down to three things. You either acquire more customers you charge your customers more or you get your customers to buy more than once or to buy more often, right? Those are the only three ways you can increase revenue in a business. And to your point, if you're, use, if you're doing the default method that people teach, which is to just go find like AliExpress garbage and slap a label on it, you're limiting yourself only to the first option, which is I got to find more customers to make more money because I can't raise prices because there's nothing premium about the product and I don't have anything complimentary so I can't create repeat customers. Whereas with what you said, 
you empower yourself to do all three of those principles. So I think that's the, the logic for why that's, that's so sound. Well, Danny, listen, man, we are sadly out of time. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. I, I appreciate so much uh, your expertise and your, your energy and your passion for life um, and all the great information you gave me about Bali that just makes me want to go visit there. But uh, how can the world go get more of your genius? Where can they find you? Yeah, oh, really pleasure talking with you, Jeff. Um, if people want to reach out to me, KenjiROI.com is the, um, the agency website, K-E-N-J-I-R-O-Y.com. If you're looking for Amazon help, uh, if you wanted to reach out to me personally, um, Facebook or Instagram might be the best place. On both platforms, it is at I am Danny Carlson and uh, can uh, probably see more just like me riding motorcycle pictures and stuff there, but feel free to reach out there as well. Yeah, I've checked out your Instagram. I actually, I really, you have a pretty big Instagram following. It's close to 100,000, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, your Instagram uh, is a lot of fun. I am Danny Carlson. All right, well, Danny, this has been amazing. Uh, I appreciate so much you coming on and dropping amazing value for the Millionaire Secrets audience. Any, uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, um, if, you, if this episode resonated with you, you're probably someone who is kind of in the in-between phase of like, I don't, I, I'm a one foot in, one foot out, like, should I really commit to it? And I mean, I think the day that you just really realize that there's never going to be a day that I am 100% certain that this is the path that I should do, and I'm 100% certain that this is the business model that I should do, once you realize that that day is never going to come, it becomes much easier to start taking the small actions every single day that is actually going to get you to that place. So I'll just, I'll just leave you guys with, uh, with that to ponder. Amen. Certainty is something you create in the form of decision. Tremendous. Danny, thank you. Millionaire Secrets viewers and listeners, appreciate you so much. You're the best part of this show and why we do what we do. Everyone have a fantastic day. You just finished this episode of the Millionaire Secrets podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please like and share this episode and do leave us a review. Let us know how we impacted you today. Your next step toward creating your awesome life is to join me and thousands of others in the Entra Nation community where you'll receive free training, networking with other awesome life seekers, access to live events, discounts, merchandise, and other awesome perks. Head over to www.entranation.com. That is www.entrenation.com and join us today. And of course, do please follow me on social media. I can be found on all the major social networks at Jeff Lerner Official. Thank you again for listening and please go be awesome.